This is Space Time Series 20, Episode 82, for broadcast on the 20th of October 2017. Coming up on Space Time, the first evidence of quantum fluctuations in deep space, an out-of-control Chinese space station about to crash back to Earth, and the first detailed spectra of antimatter hydrogen. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Evidence of a strange quantum effect first predicted back in the 1930s may finally have been detected by astronomers studying light being emitted by an extraordinarily dense and highly magnetised neutron star. The polarisation of the observed light suggests that the empty space around the neutron star is subjected to a quantum effect known as vacuum refringence. The findings, reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society and on the pre-press physics website archive.org, can't be easily explained by existing models unless the vacuum refringence effects predicted by quantum electrodynamics are included. Scientists were observing the neutron star RxJ1856.5-3754, which is located in the southern skies about 400 light-years away. Neutron stars are the super-dense remnant cores of stars at least 10 times more massive than the Sun, which have exploded as type 2 or core collapse supernovae. They also have extreme magnetic fields, billions of times stronger than that of the Sun, which permeate their outer surface and surroundings. RxJ 1856.5-3754 is part of a group of neutron stars known as the Magnificent Seven. They're known as isolated neutron stars, which don't have any stellar companions, don't emit radio waves as pulsars do, and are no longer surrounded by any progenitor supernova material. Despite being one of the closest neutron stars to Earth, its extreme dimness meant astronomers could only observe the star in visible light using the FOS2 instrument on the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope in Chile. The neutron star's magnetic field is so strong that it's even affecting the property of nearby empty space. Normally, a vacuum's thought of as being completely empty, so light can travel through it without being changed. But in QED, or quantum electrodynamics, that's the quantum theory describing the interaction between photons and charged particles such as electrons, space is actually full of virtual quantum particle pairs, which are constantly popping into and out of existence. And very strong magnetic fields can modify this space, so as to affect the polarisation of light passing through it. Now, according to QED, a highly magnetised vacuum behaves sort of like a prism for the propagation of light, and that's the effect known as vacuum refringence. However, among the many predictions of QED, until now vacuum refringence had lacked any direct experimental demonstration. And attempts to detect it in the laboratory have been unsuccessful in the 80 years since it was first predicted by Werner Heisenberg and Hans Heinrich Euler. That's because the effect can only really be detected in the presence of enormously strong magnetic fields such as those found around neutron stars. After careful analysis of the VLT data, researchers detected linear polarisation at a significant degree of around 16%, and they think that's most likely due to the boosting effect of vacuum refringence occurring in the area of empty space immediately surrounding the neutron star. Of course, there are lots of other processes that can polarise starlight as it travels through space, such as the polarisation created by scattering off dust grains. But astronomers consider it highly unlikely that that would have produced the type of polarisation signal they observed. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. 
China has confirmed that its Tiangong-1 orbiting space lab is out of control and likely to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere at any moment. Beijing says the 8.5-tonne orbiting outpost is expected to re-enter the atmosphere sometime between now and April next year, depending on orbital decay rates. The Tiangong-1, or Heavenly Palace, was launched back in 2011, primarily to test China's orbital docking systems for supplying a future full-sized manned space station. Beijing lost control of the space station last year and has now notified the United Nations that it expects the spacecraft to come down sometime in the next few months. Problems become more acute because in recent weeks the space station's experienced several periods of atmospheric drag as the ship's hull dips into thicker layers of the Earth's upper atmosphere, thereby causing it to decay faster. China says the spacecraft's perigee, or nearest orbital point to the Earth's surface, is now below 300 kilometres in altitude. As a comparison, the International Space Station orbits at an average altitude of around 400 kilometres. While most of the Tiangong-1 will burn up as it re-enters the atmosphere, some components, such as those constructed out of stainless steel or titanium, will survive the heat of re-entry. Beijing says that equates to at least 100 kilograms. Of course, out-of-control space stations re-entering Earth's atmosphere is nothing new. Both the Soviet Union's Salyut 7 and America's Skylab space stations both re-enter the atmosphere out of control. The 77-tonne Skylab eventually crashed into the Western Australian outback in 1979, while the 20-tonne Salyut 7, which was docked with the 20-tonne Cosmos 1686 at the time, broke up in the skies over Argentina in 1991, raining down fiery debris over the province of Santa Fe. Beijing says it's now monitoring the spacecraft's rate of descent closely and will inform the UN when its final death plunge begins. Of course, that's of little comfort as even slight changes in atmospheric conditions will affect the spacecraft's rate of orbital decay and consequently when and where it eventually comes back to Earth. This is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. U.S. Vice President Mike Pence has called on NASA to return Americans to the moon. The call comes in the wake of Russia's announcement that it will join the United States in building a new deep space gateway space station, which will be placed in a Lagrange position between the Earth and moon. The new space station will act as a staging post for missions to Mars, as well as to the lunar surface. But instead of just an orbiting staging post, the Vice President wants NASA to consider building a base on the lunar surface, However, that's dependent on increased funding and a sustained commitment by the U.S. Congress. The space agency says a return to the moon could cost upwards of $100 billion. It was 1961 when President John F. Kennedy called on NASA to send a man to the moon by the end of the decade and return him safely to the Earth again. Of course, that was accompanied by an immediate 89% increase in the space agency's annual budget. The Gemini and Apollo projects needed to make that happen would eventually cost the equivalent of $165 billion in today's money. But more importantly, it worked, with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin becoming the first men to walk on the moon in July 1969. Speaking at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, the vice president said the Trump administration will return NASA astronauts to the moon not only to leave behind footprints and a flag, but also prepare for a longer-term foundation. Until now, NASA's been focused on getting astronauts to Mars and beyond by the early 2030s. By the way, the beyond bit refers to proposed mission to an asteroid. NASA's new Orion spacecraft and SLS heavy lift rocket 
which are both now in their final stages of development, were originally conceived as part of the Constellation program under the Bush administration. And at the time, President Bush said they were intended to take humans back to the moon and then onto Mars and beyond. However, all that moon talk was dropped from the program as part of a cost-cutting measure by the Obama administration. Meanwhile, China is continuing its own plans to send Taikonauts to the moon, that's a Chinese version of an astronaut, they want to establish a lunar base there and begin mining operations on the lunar surface. To find out more, Andrew Dunkley is speaking with Dr Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. When are we going back to the moon? Well, soon, apparently. Um, and this is a really interesting piece of, of news that's come uh, actually out of a, a visit uh, by the US Vice President, Mike Pence, to a body known as the National Space Council. This is a, uh, you know, it's an advisory body, which is... Very interesting because it hasn't actually met before, <laughs> not for a fortnight or anything like that. It hasn't met for 25 years. Um, so quarter of a century ago, the last time the National Space Council met, which is very interesting, but been reconvened. And the speech that Mike Pence made to them really signifies a change of direction in NASA's mandate and their mode of exploration with the change of administration in the USA, because the Obama administration was pretty negative about flights to the moon. In fact, President Obama was quoted in a recent news report as having said, we've been there. That's kind of it, really. Yeah. And really set the agenda for sending humans to Mars, to orbit Mars, and then return them safely to Earth by the mid-2030s with the possibility then of, of human exploration of Mars. And it was actually the Obama administration that approved the what we call the SLS, the Space Launch System, which is a kind of back-to-Apollo-era style um, launch vehicle compared with the Space Shuttle, which, of course, was retired. And Apollo-style deep space capsule called Orion, very much the same sort of shape as the Apollo capsule, but bigger. Now, all that is still, you know, on the agenda. Uh, NASA are certainly still working on the SLS and on Orion. But the new um, administration is very keen on landing American astronauts again back on the moon and using it as a kind of trial base for space on different worlds because that's something you need to get used to mm. but also in a way to provide what you might call a, a gateway and in fact they are calling it the gateway the deep space gateway which nasa is now talking about as a possibility to build some kind of um, a lunar space station that would actually allow astronauts to train for walking on other worlds to use their equipment to test all that out in an environment which is a lot more i suppose a lot more mars-like than being in the international space station which is currently where astronauts train for all these things. So this is really very, very interesting. And there was a statement issued actually by NASA's acting administrator, because there is a new administrator going to be appointed. We don't know who that will be yet. But the acting administrator, Robert Lightfoot, last week issued a statement that said, uh, NASA has been directed to develop a plan for an innovative and sustainable program of exploration with commercial and international partners mm. to enable human expansion across the solar system, returning humans to the moon for long-term exploration and utilization, followed by human missions to Mars and other destinations. So it's very firmly back on the agenda. I mean, it's extremely exciting that this sort of thing is now happening. And I think the next thing we see, Andrew, will be the appointment of a administrator for NASA, and that person will set the agenda for the way these things are achieved over the next few years. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I actually read an article the other day about um, maybe putting 
habitats on places like the moon. And they were talking about maybe setting them up in lava tubes because they've discovered that the moon has lava tubes and Mars has lava tubes. And some of them are quite enormous and would create a natural barrier for... um, um, radiation. Radiation. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So that's, that's really interesting. Uh, I was I was wondering about when you said that we we'd fly to Mars, do a lap, and come back. Um, it's a long way to go not to land, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. But is that definitely the the, the thinking at well, the moment? Well, that was the that no, that was the thinking of the previous administration, Andrew, and a very cautious, risk averse policy. And I absolutely understand that. You know, things have have changed certainly in terms of cheerfulness at taking risks uh, since the Apollo era. I think that people were were much less risk averse in the Apollo era than they are now. Mm. And so, and there was of course that strong political imperative at that time. You're quite right. It, it's a long way to go just to come back again. On the other hand, the really dangerous part of a mission like that will be the landing and getting yeah. back off the Martian surface. So you can understand that that might still be on the agenda. And yeah. um, in, in many ways, I hope it would be. It's what happened in the case of the moon. If you remember, Apollo 8 flew around the moon, uh, sent back those marvellous pictures of Earthrise uh, before the Apollo landings later the following year. That's Dr. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory speaking with Andrew Dunkley on our sister programme, Space Nuts. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Scientists say periodic melting of ice sheets on a cold, frozen early Mars would have created enough water to carve out the ancient valleys and lake beds seen on the surface of the red planet today. Water-carved valleys and lake beds leave little doubt that water once flowed on the Martian surface. But some climate models for early Mars suggest average temperatures around the globe still stayed well below freezing. But now a new study offers a potential bridge between the warm, wet story told by Martian geology and what we can actually see on the surface and the cold, icy past suggested through atmospheric models. The study shows that it's plausible, even if Mars was generally frozen over, that peak daily temperatures in summer would have been above freezing long enough to cause melting at the edge of glaciers. The study, reported in the journal Icarus, found that there would have been enough meltwater to carve the features observed on the surface of the red planet today. The study's lead author, Ashley Plumbo from Brown University, says the research was inspired by climate dynamics seen here on Earth. She says similar conditions are found in Antarctica's McMurdo Dry Valleys, where seasonal temperature variations are sufficient to form and sustain lakes, even though average annual temperatures are well below freezing. The authors want to see if something similar might be possible for ancient Mars. Palumbo and colleagues started with state-of-the-art climate models for Mars, which assumes that the red planet had an ancient atmosphere composed largely of carbon dioxide, very much as it does today. The model generally produces a cold, icy early Mars, partially because the Sun's energy output was much weaker back in the early days of the solar system. The authors then ran the model using a broad parameter of space variables that may have been important around 4 billion years ago when the iconic valley networks on the red planet's southern highlands were formed. While scientists generally agreed that the Martian atmosphere must have been thicker in the past, it's not clear just how thick it actually was. Likewise, while most researchers agree the atmosphere was most likely carbon dioxide, there may have been small amounts of other greenhouse gases present. So Palumbo and colleagues ran the models with various plausible atmospheric thicknesses and extra amounts of greenhouse warming. 
It's also not known exactly what the variables in Mars's orbit around the Sun would have been like 4 billion years ago. So researchers tested a range of plausible orbital scenarios. They also tested different degrees of axial tilt for the red planet. That's important because axial tilt influences how much sunlight a planet's upper and lower latitudes are likely to receive. The models also needed to take into account different degrees of orbital eccentricity, that is the extent to which a planet's orbit around the sun deviates from a circle, a factor which can also amplify seasonal temperature changes. The models produced scenarios in which ice covered the region near the location of the valley networks. And while the planet's average annual temperatures in those scenarios all stayed well below freezing, the models did produce peak summertime temperatures in the southern highlands which rose above freezing. Now, in order for this mechanism to explain the valley networks, it needs to produce the right amount of meltwater runoff for long enough for the valleys to be carved out. Previous studies had already developed estimates for the maximum amount of water required to carve out the largest of the Martian valleys. And Palumbo's models show that a highly eccentric Martian orbit would have produced the right conditions. She says the degree of eccentricity required was well within the range of possible Martian orbits 4 billion years ago. Taken together, Palumbo says the results offer a potential means of reconciling the geological evidence of water flowing on a warm, wet Mars with the atmospheric evidence of a cold, icy planet. The authors are now exploring additional candidate warming mechanisms, including volcanism and impact cratering, which may have also contributed to the melting of a cold and icy early Mars. So, while the work doesn't close the cold and icy versus warm and wet Mars debate just yet, it at least does make the case for a mostly frozen early Mars a distinct possibility. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. Scientists with the Alpha Collaboration have successfully obtained the first detailed spectrum of the antimatter counterpart of hydrogen. The findings reported in the journal Nature showed that the spectral lines of antihydrogen match those of normal hydrogen. Antimatter is the same as normal matter, but simply with opposite electrical charge. So, the antimatter counterpart to the positively charged proton is the negatively charged antiproton. And the antimatter counterpart to the negatively charged electron is the positively charged positron. The study was made more difficult because matter and antimatter annihilate each other when they come into contact. So scientists needed to keep them apart as they were studying them. And the problem is you can't put antimatter into an ordinary container like you can matter. Instead, the antimatter needs to be trapped inside a special magnetic container known as a magnetic bottle, making detailed research far more difficult. The study's lead author, Professor Michael Hayden from Canada's Simon Fraser University, says spectral lines are like fingerprints. Every element has its unique pattern. However, there is one possible exception. Matter and antimatter are believed to be mirror images of one another, and so the spectral lines of antimatter atoms should be precisely the same as those of their normal atom counterparts. But whether or not that's true is unknown. Until now, scientists have only had glimpses of antimatter spectral lines, making comparisons with normal matter spectral lines difficult. And that's where the Alpha Collaboration comes in. They studied antihydrogen, the antimatter counterpart to the ordinary hydrogen atom. And their experimental results showed that a specific set of spectral lines in antihydrogen precisely matched those of normal hydrogen. The team plans to zoom in much closer now and check if subtle discrepancies exist between the two types of atoms on a finer scale. 
Conducted at the CERN Laboratories in Geneva, the research involved irradiating anti-hydrogen atoms with microwaves, causing the anti-atoms to reveal their identity by emitting or absorbing energy at specific wavelengths. That pattern or spectra of frequencies is the fingerprint Hayden was talking about. By studying the properties of antimatter, Hayden and colleagues hope to learn more about the universe on a fundamental level. You see, scientists can make antimatter in the lab, but it doesn't seem to exist naturally across the universe except in minuscule quantities. And that's the big question. You see, equal amounts of matter and antimatter would have been created in the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. And because matter and antimatter annihilate each other when they come into contact, the universe should have exploded in a massive gamma-ray blast as soon as it came into being. But we're here, so that clearly didn't happen. And the thing is, scientists don't know why that didn't happen. Nor do they know why the universe we live in has more matter than antimatter. And they're the answers Hayden and colleagues are trying to find. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. The European Space Agency's new Sentinel-5P Earth observation satellite has successfully blasted into orbit aboard a Russian Rokot rocket from the Plesetsk Cosmodrome north of Moscow. The Russian Federal Space Agency Roscosmos Rokot is a converted SS-19 three-stage liquid-fueled intercontinental ballistic missile known in the West by the NATO codename Stiletto. For this mission, the SS-19's usual thermonuclear warhead was replaced with a commercial payload, in this case the Sentinel-5P. The Sentinel-5P is part of Europe's Copernicus program to study Earth's environment, surface and atmosphere. And this spacecraft is the first Copernicus mission dedicated to monitoring the atmosphere. The spacecraft carries instruments to detect trace gases such as nitrogen dioxide, ozone, formaldehyde, sulfur dioxide, methane, carbon monoxide and aerosols, all of which affect the air and climate. The Sentinel-5P will comb a 2,600-kilometre-wide path across the Earth's surface, allowing it to map the entire planet every day. The mission will also contribute to services such as volcanic ash monitoring for aviation safety. Scientists will also use the data to improve their understanding of important processes in the atmosphere related to climate and the formation of holes in the ozone layer. The Sentinel-5P, also known as the Sentinel-5 Precursor, was developed as a stopgap measure to reduce data gaps between the demise of the Envisat spacecraft and the upcoming launch of the Sentinel-5. It'll also complement the GOM-2 instrument aboard the METOP meteorological satellite. In the future, both the geostationary Sentinel-4 and the polar-orbiting Sentinel-5 missions will monitor the composition of the atmosphere. Both missions will be carried as payloads on future meteorological satellites. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. A Russian Soyuz rocket has launched the Progress MS-07 cargo ship bound for the International Space Station. The mission, carrying some 2.7 tonnes of supplies, blasted off from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in the Central Asian Republic of Kazakhstan. The Soyuz 21A launch vehicle was to attempt a superfast rendezvous flight path to the orbiting space station. The new superfast rendezvous flight path would have taken just three and a half hours, covering just two orbits. The new superfast trajectory was to be tested on the Progress MS-07 before being introduced on December's Soyuz crew rotation mission to the space station. 
Since 2012, the Russian Federal Space Agency has steadily introduced a four-orbit, six-hour fast rendezvous flight path to the space station, replacing the conventional two-day, 34-orbit journey. The shorter flight time was partially based on the new Russian automated approach and docking system and partially on better timing of the launch and flight path angle of the launch vehicle in relation to the space station. The space station also, however, needs to be at the optimal altitude and orbital flight plane for the fast rendezvous to work, and that's a process which could take a few months to set up. The new three-and-a-half-hour super-fast rendezvous flight path requires even greater precision, with the launch vehicle being inserted into orbit just 200 kilometres below and behind the space station. So, as you can imagine, any delay on the launch pad means reverting back to the old two-day flight profile. And as Murphy's Law dictates, that's exactly what happened prior to the launch of the Progress MS-07. It seems an electrical connector failed to uncouple between the launch vehicle and the tower just seconds before liftoff. That failure prevented the Soyuz switching to internal power, and that triggered a launch abort. Luckily, another more successful launch attempt was made two days later. The uh, second tower now uh, is beginning uh, to retract. The automated launch sequence underway, standing by for main engine start. Main engine start initiated. Turbo pumps and engines up to flight speed. And liftoff. Liftoff of the 68th Progress resupply craft bound on a two-day journey to the International Space Station. Good roll, yaw, and pitch program reported. Good parameters. Stage one engines operating normally. The Soyuz boosters arcing out to the northeast. The vehicle is reported to be in good stable configuration. Good pressure in the uh, combustion chambers. A good ride so far for the Progress resupply craft. All the control systems are reported to be in good shape as uh, we pass the 90-second mark into the flight. All engines operating normally, standing by for first stage shutdown and separation. Yaw pitch and roll program is all normal, and we've had confirmation of uh, first stage separation. Two minutes, 20 seconds into the flight, uh, the vehicle uh, traveling 4,500 miles an hour, 29 miles in altitude, 29 miles downrange from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. All structural parameters are reported to be normal. Second stage engine performance reported nominal from the blockhouse down in Baikonur. All control systems are reported to be in excellent shape. Just over three minutes into the flight, it will take eight minutes, 46 seconds for the uh, Progress to reach its preliminary orbit. And the shroud uh, has been jettisoned, covering uh, the Progress 68 cargo craft, now exposed. Second stage engines continue to perform normally. Three and a half minutes into the flight, the Soyuz booster traveling more than 6,000 miles an hour, 66 miles in altitude, 125 miles downrange from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. About uh, one more minute uh, left in second stage performance. The uh, third stage uh, will ignite uh, before the separation of the second stage in what is called a hot stage firing. The second stage engines continue to fire normally. Four minutes, 15 seconds into the flight. Yaw pitch and roll program, all normal. Liftoff again occurred at uh, 3.46 and 53 seconds a.m. Central Time, 4.46 a.m. and 53 seconds Eastern Time. 2.46 p.m. at the Baikonur Cosmodrome. All uh, Soyuz booster uh, parameters are normal. Four minutes, 47 seconds into the flight, standing by for second stage shutdown and separation. 
and we've had uh, third stage ignition, second stage shutdown and separation. The uh, Progress 68 riding atop uh, the singular power of the third stage engines right now for the remainder of powered flight. Coming up on the five and a half minute mark into the flight, all vehicle parameters are reported to be normal. The flight control team at the Russian Mission Control Center in Karayov standing by uh, to take over control of the Progress's journey to the International Space Station after third stage shutdown and separation. Coming up on the six-minute mark into the flight, uh, the uh, third stage of the Soyuz booster traveling almost 11,000 miles an hour, 115 miles in altitude, some 472 miles downrange from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Good performance from that third stage engine. No issues reported. About uh, two minutes of powered flight remaining. Vehicle very stable, good third stage performance. Yaw pitch and roll program continues uh, to perform normally for the uh, Soyuz booster's upper stage and the uh, Progress 68 cargo craft. The uh, vehicle traveling more than 13,000 miles an hour, 124 miles in altitude. All parameters are normal, about one minute of powered flight remaining. Eight minutes, 10 seconds into the flight, about 30 seconds or so of uh, powered flight remaining. Everything is stable and looking good. Yaw pitch and roll program is all normal as we stand by for third stage shutdown and spacecraft separation. Third stage shutdown, spacecraft separation reported. Standing by for navigational antenna and solar array deploy. And the report uh, from the Russian Mission Control Center is that uh, all navigational antennas and solar arrays have been deployed as planned. So a perfect ascent to orbit, uh, two days behind schedule, but uh, safe and sound nonetheless, as the Progress 68 has entered its uh, preliminary orbit, headed on a two-day journey to the International Space Station. The Progress MS-07 is carrying some 2,697 kilograms of supplies for the orbiting outpost. This includes some 1,350 kilograms of food, clothing, spare parts, supplies and science equipment, as well as 420 kilograms of water, 23 kilograms of oxygen, 24 kilograms of air and 880 kilograms of propellant. After conducting the usual run around the space station, the Progress successfully docked to the Russian Nadia port. There are two more supply missions bound for the space station this year. Orbital ATK Cygnus OA-8E mission is slated to launch from the newly rebuilt Wallops Island Flight Facility on the Virginian Atlantic coast aboard the company's Antares launch vehicle in mid-November. The launch pad's only just been brought back into use following a massive crash and burn back on October 28, 2014, when an Antares rocket carrying the Cygnus Orb-3 mission to the space station exploded seconds after launch. The failure was eventually traced to a faulty Russian rocket engine. The Cygnus mission will be followed in either late November or early December by the SpaceX Dragon CRS-13 mission, launching on a Falcon 9 rocket from Pad 39A at the Kennedy Space Center at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Base in Florida. This is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. And a new study has concluded that people who binge eat are more likely to obsess and ruminate on angry thoughts and experiences. The findings, reported in the Australian Journal of Psychology, looked at over 500 people, finding that those with high levels of binge eating also had a high tendency to become preoccupied with angry moods and thoughts. Researchers found the same link was not seen in people with risky drinking behaviours. 
Scientists say the study suggests that binge eating may be one way people cope with these negative thoughts and that anger rumination may be one factor keeping binge eating behaviour ongoing. Meanwhile, a separate study reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry claims that people with major depression can become obese and that both these health issues may stem from a shared genetic cause. The study looked at over 25,000 people. It found that 16% had a major depression putting on weight when they were down. The researchers also found a genetic overlap between the risk of depression and body mass index, suggesting that the two may well have a shared biological cause. A new study warns that climate change will increase the frequency and intensity of thunderstorms. The findings reported in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences are based on climate models looking at the potential energy available to thunderstorms as the planet warms. Scientists found that the energy available on the hottest days will rise and that conditions favourable to severe thunderstorms will become more common in both tropical and subtropical regions. But until now, the relationship between such storms and climate change has been uncertain. The new analysis of climate change predictions suggests that the frequency of severe thunderstorms is likely to increase as the planet warms. Scientists found that an important process which allows potential energy to build up in the atmosphere is related to the mixing of air between clouds and their environment. It seems as the planet warms, the mixing mechanism will become more efficient in generating potential energy. The mixing hypothesis also suggests that the highest values of potential energy will occur on days when the humidity in the atmosphere is relatively low. And this was the case in observations of the tropical and subtropical atmosphere. A new study claims men are more likely to die if they receive blood transfusions from a woman who's been pregnant compared to if they receive blood from another male. The findings reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that the most common cause of transfusion-related death is transfusion-related acute lung injury, a condition that's more commonly linked to blood transfusions from female donors who have been pregnant at least once. In fact, researchers found around 20 more deaths per 1,000 men treated in this case. Scientists say further research is needed to determine the clinical significance of this finding and identify the underlying cause. A new study has revealed that volcanic eruptions and climate change may have been linked to periods of social unrest and the eventual downfall of one of Egypt's most famous dynasties. The findings, reported in the journal Nature Communications, is based on a broad study of a combined team of historians and climate scientists. The fortunes of the Ptolemy Pharaoh dynasty between 305 and 30 BCE, which ended with the death of Cleopatra, was always closely linked to the River Nile, as the river's summer floods were essential to the region's agriculture. But the new research shows that volcanic eruptions at the time affected the regional monsoon, periodically stopping the Nile from flooding. This week we celebrated the International Day of the Cat, and so it's timely that I tell you about a new genetic link that's been discovered between prehistoric saber-toothed cats and your average family house kitty cat. The study, reported in the journal Current Biology, looked at the DNA of two species of saber-toothed cats, finding that these ancient felines shared a common ancestor with your pet pussycat around 20 million years ago. Scientists also found that the two species of saber-toothed cats were genetically more different from each other than what a tiger is from your family moggy. The Australian sceptics say the science indicates marriage equality won't have a detrimental effect on the children of same-sex partners. Australians are currently participating in a marriage equality postal survey. Australia is now one of the only major Western nations which still doesn't allow same-sex couples to marry. The survey runs from the 12th of September through to November 7. 
Postal votes will be formally counted by the Australian Electoral Commission and then published by the Australian Bureau of Statistics on November 15. The survey asks only one question, should the law be changed to allow same-sex couples to marry? And participants are simply asked to either tick the yes or no box. If the postal vote shows the majority of Australians support same-sex marriage, legislation will be drafted and brought before Federal Parliament in the form of a bill reflecting the will of the people. It will then be presented to the House of Representatives and the Senate, eventually becoming law. Current voting trends indicate over 62% of Australians have voted. The latest survey results indicate around 61% of those who voted are in favour of same-sex marriage, including over 66% of women and 56% of men. But it seems voting is very much age-based, with over 80% of 18- to 24-year-olds voting yes, compared to 69% of 25- to 49-year-olds, 52% of 50- to 64-year-olds, and just 48% of those aged over 65 voting in favour of marriage equality. Supporters of equality in marriage insist legalising same-sex marriage is simply an equal rights issue, allowing all people to be treated the same under the law. Those opposing marriage equality say marriage is a sacred institution, reserved for the religious union of a man and a woman. Other opponents warn that it opens the door to more extreme sexual deviations. The convoluted postal voting process was developed to placate the powerful Bible-built Christian lobby in Australian politics, which is strongly opposed to homosexuality and gay marriage. When directly asked several times on Sky News this week as to whether the Christian lobby would respect the vote of the people were marriage equality to succeed, Christian lobby spokesman Lyle Shelton repeatedly deflected the question, instead reiterating the lobby's position equating marriage equality with teaching young children inappropriate subject matter in schools. The religious rights campaign claims same-sex marriage would force the indoctrination of young children into homosexuality with one Christian politician, South Australian Senator Cory Bernardi, even linking gay marriage to bestiality, claiming gay marriage would lead to the social acceptance of polygamy and having sex with animals. Others claim same-sex marriage would harm the mental health of children brought up in such a home life, with one medical practitioner citing a study supporting her claim. And that's where Australian sceptics have stepped in. Australian sceptics developed a position on marriage equality after examining all the available scientific evidence and research on how children brought up by same-sex couples are affected by such parenting. Joining us now to explain what they uncovered is the president of Australian Skeptics, Aran Segev. Our view is that for every public decision, it's important to take an evidence-based view. It is important to make the decision based on the available evidence. In fact, the goals of Australian Skeptics, as shown through our vision, mission and aims, to publicly advocate for evidence-based and rational decision-making and policy development by individuals, as well as governments, statutory bodies and other organisations. So we decided to look into it and see whether there are issues of evidence that could be discerned and that could be assessed. That's been one of the big issues in that there's been a fair deal of debate going on between both pro and anti sections of the community, both claiming to have scientific evidence to support their viewpoint. Well, we found actually fairly little evidence that has scientific backing. The Yes campaign generally claims the uh, moral 
point of, of rights, of human rights, which I personally believe in, but it's not something that we can assess as Australian skeptics. And the No campaign, similarly, mostly takes that point of view with regards to the basic point of whether same-sex couples should be allowed to marry. However, the No campaign seems to be, when we looked at the evidence, we looked at the claims, what we found was that the No campaign expands the arguments to quite a few that, are, that fall outside of the question of marriage directly, and some of them would not really accessible. I mean, if you say that it is immoral or it's against the traditional definition of marriage, that's not something that we can, I mean, we definitely not a scientific issue. We found that in the end, the only really accessible question that was raised by either side was the question of how children fare in same-sex marriages, where the No campaign claimed that they do worse. There was a poster that was claiming to be quoting from a paper that was written by a professor from the Australian Catholic University it's not exactly what the paper claims, but what the poster said that the paper claims is that children raised by gay parents do significantly worse. Now, we looked at that paper, we looked at the methodology in the paper, and more importantly, we looked at what other research shows, including research that specifically refers to this paper. And this paper is, has no support in social studies. It is universally condemned as flawed in, in a very profound way. It's very it's seen generally by researchers in the field as having um Put the, uh, it, it, it basically it had the arrow already stuck and then drew the bullseye around it. It's definitely an agenda field research and Professor is, has some form in that relation. He's, he's a Catholic priest and he's written papers of this kind in the past and his papers generally not accepted. We have not found them to be quoted. You know, the citations of academic papers are a very important measure of whether those papers are accepted by the academic community and his papers are generally, when they are cited, they're cited negatively. They're cited for criticism. Yeah, I was really surprised about that too because when, when I did my research on this topic, his was the only paper I found that was like that. All others found virtually, and I was actually surprised. I, I thought there would be negative reaction for a kid being brought up by same-sex parents. It was my honest belief that that would happen, but that's not what the science has shown us. No, no. So what science generally shows is that uh, children in same-sex marriages generally fare exactly as well. Exactly. There was no difference. One of the problems that he looked at, all the worst situations like divorced parents and all kinds of things like that in same-sex marriages, as opposed to the general population of children in heterosexual marriages. However, when you compare oranges and oranges, you know, loving couples who are together, or when you take the socioeconomic status into account and education levels and all other things that, that affect the well-being of children, there was, in fact, you know, there, there's a lot of research. There's, it's important to point out that there's a lot of research for many countries, including Australia, that show that essentially there's no difference. In fact, the only difference found occasionally is that children in same-sex marriages do a little bit better. However, it is not a strong effect. It, but we can confidently say with a great degree of certainty that they don't do worse. So this comes across very much as another example of bad science being used to try and push a specific viewpoint. Well, the, we know from research that people trust scientists. So when you tell people that science shows A or B, then people generally believe A or B. People do not trust politicians. We know that there's professions that are trusted more or less, and, and scientists are way up there in terms of being trusted. However, that causes all kinds of unscrupulous people, mostly politicians, I would say, but 
but not only. It definitely happens in, in all kinds of uh, areas of quackery and pseudoscience where they use the name of science. They use science-sounding phrasing and wording to ensure that they're taken seriously, that they basically uh, borrow the credibility of science to promote a position that is not scientific. And that is really troubling. And that is something that Australian skeptics keeps, keeps fighting and will continue to fight. That's Iran Segev, president of Australian Skeptics. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Audioboom, YouTube, from spacetimewithstuartgary.com, or from your favourite podcast download provider. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world on TuneIn Radio, and as part of Virgin Australia's in-flight entertainment. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. If you want more Spacetime, check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and other things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one worded in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 